I'm your health coach, Melissa Lee. Here at Thriving with Nourishment Health, I provide women with the resources to reclaim fertility and celebrate periods through the lens of functional medicine. It is time to empower ourselves with natural solutions over band-aid medicines. We will get to the root cause of symptoms to see the bigger picture. Let us find the ability to heal ourselves, get back to Mother Nature, and live in a healthier world. Hi everyone, say hi to Dr. Jessica Drummond. She is the CAO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and is passionate to empower women who struggle with women's, uh, women health and pelvic health conditions. She's had two decades of experience with patients and she also regularly lectures on topics such as natural fertility options. So I have Dr. Jessica on the show today to answer some of the popular questions I received about birth control and fertility back in January when I was running a free five-day challenge about it. And I know all of you listeners, you came in with questions. And so I definitely want to have an expert on here to answer that. Um, and I also want to chat with uh, Dr. Jessica about period health, including period irregularities and some lab testing. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Right. So I'm really excited to get started because I think a lot of these common questions, they are very, you know, they're like on the top of someone's minds once they think about fertility and birth control. Um, but before we get into the Q&A, let's talk about what is considered like a normal menstrual cycle. Hmm. So a normal menstrual cycle starts day one is the first day of bleeding and estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, your three main reproductive and sexual health hormones are at their lowest levels. Then through the month, those hormones increase. Uh, the first half of the month, they steadily rise, you know, starting about days three to day five, uh, especially estrogen and testosterone, progesterone sort of modestly. And then just before ovulation and mid cycle, roughly day 14, 15, 16, um, you'll have that surge in, in estrogen and testosterone feeling the highest level of libido. And then you'll have release of an egg. Then the second half of the cycle, estrogen drops off a bit and then rebounds mildly uh, to testosterone stays relatively low, kind of steadily dropping and progesterone ramps up significantly, like much higher than the others. Um, to potentially support a pregnancy. Of course, if an egg is not fertilized and not implanted into the side of the womb, then all of the sex hormones come back down to their lowest levels and the menstrual cycle begins again. So I'm also guessing that, you know, with all the changes in the, um, you know, the hormone levels, it's also very normal to have different energy levels, right, during the month. Yeah, so estrogen, for example, uh, supports insulin sensitivity. So during the first half of the cycle, women are going to be more insulin sensitive, um, more physically energetic and sometimes mentally you know, focused. Uh, second half of the cycle, there's less, there's more insulin resistance. So we have to be more mindful of eating, you know, foods that quickly convert to sugars and carbohydrates. Um, 
because the the estrogen support is not there anymore and progesterone is very supportive of sleep which is a good thing so second half of the cycle it's going to be easier to get deeper more restorative sleep um so there are benefits throughout but yes there are going to be changes in kind of our natural energy and sleep quality and sugar cravings, but when we should eat sugar and not eat sugar. Okay. Unfortunately, the times we have the biggest <laughs> cravings is when we should eat at the least. But, yeah. um, but there are these normal fluctuations. Um, now, if someone is on hormonal birth control, they are not having that cycle. They're having a, a bleed, but it's really just a withdrawal bleed. It's not actually a menstrual cycle or a period per mm -hmm. se. Okay. I like mm -hmm. that you brought up the whole sugar craving thing because I was just going to ask you about it too. Like, yeah. are, you know, not as insulin sensitive, but then a lot of us have sugar cravings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we often have that sort of chocolate because progesterone and estrogen also modulates dopamine and serotonin, which are brain neurotransmitters that keep us feeling calm and happy. And mm -hmm. when we lose some of that, we crave it. And sugar is another way we can get kind of a quick boost to those neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. um, but if we can learn over the course of the month to be more stable with, you know, keeping the blood sugar more stable, you'll have less symptoms with your periods, less headaches, less crampiness, less bloating, things like that. If when you feel the most um, sugar cravings, you actually sort of quote unquote, deny them the most. So it'll <laughs> right. be easier for you to tolerate a little bit of sugar, a glass of wine here or there in, you know, right before ovulation, it won't impact you as much, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of energy and, you know, energy crashes and cravings and things like that. That's really good to know. So, you know, if someone has like irregular period and, I think, you know, that's mostly like the follicular phase is longer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or like, you know, someone could miss their period um, and it only comes like every two to three months. So why do women actually, you know, encounter or have that experience? Well, it depends. Uh, you know, it, it is a hormonal disruption, generally speaking, or a significant stressor that impacts the hormones. So if you think about various hormones, it's not just reproductive hormones we have. We have insulin, we have cortisol, which is a stress buffering hormone and is kind of the, the key hormone for our stress resilience. And then you've also got your thyroid hormones. So all of those systems, stress resilience, thyroid function, which is about metabolism, and reproductive hormones have to be kind of functioning, functioning at their best levels for the cycle to be regulated. Now, there are times when it's sort of normal to have a regular cycle. So when the cycle is first beginning, so it takes anywhere from a few months to a few years for a menstrual cycle to regulate, it can take up to 12 years to fully mature a cycle, which is why you know, it's not necessarily a great idea to just start hormonal birth control, you know, right at 12, 15, because now there are times when that's potentially beneficial as a, as a short-term strategy, depending on what's going on, but to just sort of suppress the cycle and then come off it 15 years later, 
uh, there may be some fertility challenges because the cycle has never matured. It kind of gets paused. Um, so that's a time when irregular cycles are somewhat normal. Postpartum, same thing, you know, the, the hormone levels can fluctuate related to nursing and, you know, the, whether this is normal or not, it's sort of the reality, the fact that postpartum women don't sleep that well in general. Right. So there's, there's that stressor and just the stressor of raising a new baby. And then in perimenopause, which generally starts somewhere between 35 and 40, early 40s, um, the cycle begins to sort of, we get sort of reverse puberty for anywhere from five to 15 years up until um, menopause, which again can be you know, anywhere from the mid 40s to the average age of menopause is 51. Okay. So yeah, I like that. Like you laid out all the different stages of a woman's life journey. Um, it's nice to know. It's, yeah, it's nice to bring up that point about you know not going on birth control when someone's like really really young. Um, so I'm wondering also like you know irregular periods can also stem from like you know having PCOS or like if someone comes off the birth control. And I think that that might be a question for later on, but I guess like, you know, if someone comes off the birth control that can also happen, right? Like their periods doesn't come back immediately. Mm -hmm. Right, because you know, it, it can be because it's been suppressed. Now, the, essentially the, the mechanism for how periods are suppressed with hormonal birth control is there's a protein released called sex hormone binding globulin. And that kind of like ties up all of your natural reproductive hormones. And then the pill gives you back a little bit, uh, just enough because we need estrogen for lots of other things, mm -hmm. brain function, heart function. There are more than 300 uh, locations of estrogen receptors in the body. You know, we just talked about insulin sensitivity and things like that. So estrogen is not only for reproduction. So we can't just turn off the faucet or right. literally the woman could die. So we have to, you know, add back some estrogen. Uh, and it's possible even with being on the pill for as little as three months that the sex hormone binding globulin levels can stay elevated relatively permanently. Um, although there are some things you can do to, to lower those. And so that's one reason why sometimes it's hard to get the cycle back and it doesn't always happen, but if that protein stays elevated, you're going to keep kind of tying up some of your natural hormone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. Um, and so, you know, what, are, what steps can a woman take if she finds herself spotting um, frequently without a period. I think that also comes up a lot, like, like for more than two days, for example, just like in between the cycle. Yeah. In between the cycle or, you know, even for me personally, sometimes if I'm ovulating and then sometimes I'm spotting, but then it like, it lasts more than two or three days. Hmm. And so, um, I guess that could be many causes of spotting, but what do you think is at play there? Well, I think anytime there's some degree of irregularity in the cycle, I'm looking for a couple of things. One, you know, we do want to rule out any endometrial problems, any, you know, cervical cancer risk, any, any endometrial cancer risk, you know, any H, any sexually transmitted diseases, you know, things like that. Um, but a lot of times, you know, I think we have to be mindful 
my friend Lisa Jack calls the menstrual cycle the fifth vital sign. And I think oh, yeah. that's a, a really wise thing, you know, assuming there's nothing serious going on in terms of like cancer or something like that, then I think we have to start thinking about, well, what's going on in our lives that's either stressful um, emotionally or stressful biochemically and physiologically. Mm -hmm. And the menstrual cycle is very sensitive to those things sometimes. So you know, is it a lot of international travel? Probably not right now, but you know, that might be a right. thing. Was in the past, could be in the future, <laughs> who knows? Um, you know, sleep timing is off or too much blue light exposure and not enough natural light exposure, excessive exercise, um, you know, too much sugar, too much processed grains, too many chemicals in the food, too many chemicals like xenoestrogen exposure. So too much drinking water out of plastic bottles or using um, cosmetics and household cleaners and things like that, that mm -hmm. have um, estrogen mimicking chemicals. So I think, you know, anytime the cycle is off in terms of bleeding heaviness, irregularity, bleeding too light, uh, period symptoms that aren't super severe necessarily, but more than someone's normal. So acne, um, uh, fatigue, mood swings, exactly. <laughs> right. Cramping, breast tenderness. Then we're looking at like, what are some of the, what are some of the systems that are off is the, are the hormones either not being well processed such as with um you know sometimes spotting or more heavy periods headaches crampiness if things are like too much uh mm -hmm. breast tenderness swelling headaches um below like puffiness crampiness then i start to look for excess estrogen and in that sense the first two ways to help estrogen metabolism is liver support. So lots mm. of leafy greens and cruciferous vegetables and things like that. Hydration, um, watch the caffeine, watch the sugar, and then also minerals, plenty of magnesium and zinc and all of that. And then also making sure someone's having a regular bowel movement because estrogen is processed both in the liver and in the, in the bowel. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's a lot of info for that. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, there seems to be so many things that could contribute. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if someone is, okay, feeling a little overwhelmed with the lifestyle choices, and you mentioned that you would look at excess estrogen, are there any other lab testing, you know, is recommended for someone who has like missing periods? Yeah. So I usually start actually with digestive testing. I used to do more hormonal testing, but I find that especially if a woman is, you know, has her period. So she's say older than she's an old teenager or older or 12 or older or something like that up till about early forties, mm -hmm. that range, um, there's usually enough healthy support unless there was some like surgery done or, you know, ovary, ovary removed or some problem, you know, some major situation. If then I find that optimizing digestive function, so good daily bowel movements, no bloating, no stomach pain, you know, 
good transport, you know, all of that kind of stuff. The digestion is working well and the mm -hmm. gut bacteria are nice and balanced. We have a lot of good bacteria, not too much bad bacteria, not a big like yeast overgrowth or something like that. Often, if we can combine that with improving stress balance. So in our clinic, we actually track heart rate variability as a measure of stress resilience. And we just do it with a simple watch, a fitness tracker. I actually just took mine off this morning because I went to acupuncture, but it's just like a, <laughs> okay. it's literally like a little watch you wear. We could also, there are rings that do it. I have this aura ring. We use a Garmin watch mm -hmm. that will show people when they're stressed and how well their body is balancing and uh, nervous system stress. So when we can normalize and improve that and optimize digestive function, most of the time we don't need to do hormonal testing um, because the hormones have everything they need to start improving, but we can. So right. in my clinic, we usually do um, stool testing to look at the gut you know, composition, the gut microbiome composition, and if there's any inflammation in the gut, things like that. We look at organic acids testing, which is a really valuable test for seeing how well someone absorbs nutrients and if they're sensitive to things like oxalates and, you know, what amino acids they're missing, things like mm -hmm. that. And then if we need to, we also sometimes look at genetic testing, which can be really valuable um, and my other, another form of microbiome testing. And then if everything is normalized there, which, you know, you know, that's what we work right. on first. I usually don't see it like a perfect test. Yeah. Um, then, you know, we can also look at Dutch testing and things like that to look at the hormones. But to me, mm -hmm. to we, we don't want to just patch together the hormones, right? We want to fix the foundation of the physiologic systems. And for me, what I've learned over the last decade is digestive system and nervous system. When you get those well dialed in, um, the hormones really take care of themselves most of the time. Yeah, sounds good. It's kind of like the functional medicine lens, isn't it? Like you're mm -hmm. targeting the roots and not just like the leaves and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I really, I'm really glad you brought that up. And also, um, you know, all, the, all of this testing is usually through like a more functional practitioner rather than the conventional healthcare system, right? I just want to put it out there because I know a lot of my clients, um, you know, when they do like lab testing, a lot of the times it's really hard to even get like a full thyroid panel, for example, you know, and mm -hmm. even though I'm like writing down all the like tests that they can advocate for, but yeah, sometimes it's just really hard to get that. Yeah. And sometimes you do have to just directly order your own labs. The good thing mm -hmm. is most of these labs are direct to consumer. And I really think with the age of data analytics and people having a lot of their own health data, literally on their wrist or their finger and more and more of your own chart, like I uh, see some physicians here locally, my, my local doctors, I can talk to them directly through my chart there. You can see all your lab tests there. Like more and more, I think digital health patients kind of owning their health data and understanding it. You know, 
you're always, we're always going to need specialists and people who really, you know, no one practitioner and even no one patient can really know everything, right. even about their own condition. There's often more to learn, but you want to think of yourself as, as leading your healing team. So while you want to work with your doctors and nutritionists and health coaches and physical therapists, your job as a patient is really to be the person kind of driving the ship, to take mm -hmm. in information, to learn and, and, you know, try the things that are recommended and utilize the consultation of your skilled practitioners that you're working with, but don't ab abdicate your responsibility uh, or even your opportunity to just get some of this information yourself and reach out to practitioners until you find one or a, ideally a team eventually who, you know, can help you support um, being the leader that's, of your healing journey. That's the dream. You know? That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's really possible now because so much of the stuff, even LabCorp and Quest, you know, mm -hmm. you can order a lot of your own tests right through there. Um, yeah, I've got a couple of questions on here. And then the first one is, does coming off the birth control pill lead to missing periods? I think we've talked a little bit about that. Do you? Yeah, I mean, more? sometimes I would just okay. say not always, but it certainly could because of what we talked about before, elevated SHGB and just, you know, sometimes it takes a while for the system to recalibrate. Okay. Um, the next one is, how soon can I conceive after going off? birth control, like, can I conceive? And does birth control actually affect my fertility long-term? It does not in terms of any of the studies that have been done. I, that's not necessarily the case, but I, in an ideal world from a functional lens, um, I would suggest that you take three months, um, come off the pill, take three months, really rebuild your nutrient stores, B vitamins, vitamin C, all the antioxidants, colorful fruits and vegetables, uh, N-acetylcysteine, alpha lipoic acid, like antioxidants that help really strengthen the DNA of the eggs and sperm, have your partner also be, you know, eating this way, sort of get on a prenatal vitamin, prenatal nutrition, um, sleep quality, you know, moderate the, the exercise, right. all the stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Three months to really optimize the mitochondrial health and then and the DNA health of the eggs and sperm uh, while your cycle is likely regulating, you know, and you don't necessarily like you can use condoms or you can not, it's totally up to you or other barrier methods of birth control. But you know, and, and many people won't get pregnant within the first three months anyway, but you know, some people certainly will. I mean, there are people who get pregnant on the pill. Um, so, you know, that's rare obviously, but you know, that, that happens. Um, so if you give yourself with either barrier methods or, you know, fertility awareness method or something like that, a few months before you're kind of all in uh, aiming to get pregnant, I think it just gives you the, your body the opportunity to be as biochemically healthy as possible. Yeah, I love that um, answer. Also, because it kind of ties into what you were talking earlier about 
you know, having the patient be in charge of their own healing journey and, you know, be in control of like their biochemistry, which is great. Um, so the next question is kind of similar. Is there anything that I can be doing to help conceive quicker after birth control? I guess we can't really control, right, the speed. <laughs> no, I mean, one thing you do want to do, which sometimes people miss, is there's only a very small window of sort of opportunity for conception. And it's not always right in the middle of the cycle. It depends on when your cycle is mm-hmm. uh, when you're when you're ovulating. So fertility awareness method, and, and I mentioned my friend, Dr. Uh, Lisa Jack, she's write, wrote a book called the, the Fifth Vital Sign. She and other people teach fertility awareness method, which can just help you know when you're actually ovulating, may not be the exact time you think. So mm-hmm. te- you know, following that can be useful. Um, making sure you're actually ovulating can be useful. And, you know, it's normal to take up to six months to conceive, um, even a year. But if you're over 35 and have strong fertility goals, then after six months, I would pursue more assessment if you haven't Mm -hmm. um, been successful. Okay. Yeah, nice. And um, I'm glad you brought Lisa up because I did have her on the podcast like way early on too to talk about fertility awareness. I'm definitely going to link to that one. Um, in this episode, I think it's very relevant. Um, So someone asked here, should I be doing anything before I get off birth control in preparation for pregnancy? Well, what I would do is come off birth control and use barrier methods for three to six months. Okay. uh, And then aim to get pregnant. Three months is probably enough if you're really, you know, doing all the things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and so uh, what are the changes or like lasting side effects in my body after going off birth control? Well, I mean, your body should revert, revert back to normal cycling um, pretty quickly. You know, as I said, for some people, it's within weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's not, that's when you want to look at, you know, is your, are your hormones being metabolized well through the liver and the gut bacteria? Are your hormone levels coming back up high enough or are they still being suppressed by sex hormone binding globulin or some other reason? How is your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, your cortisol, your stress resilience? How's your thyroid doing? If any of those levers are off, then Mm -hmm. you might not jump back into kind of normal healthy cycling. Mm -hmm. And for some women, you know, being on the pill longer um, is more problematic. So you know, I, I would just say that, and, and the other thing that can sometimes happen is people go on the pill when they're teenagers or early twenties for, to like quiet a symptom, like for acne or cramps or something mm-hmm. like that. And the pill doesn't fix those symptoms. It just sort of quiets them. Right. So they come back and they haven't been, you know, the underlying issue has not been addressed. So if there's an underlying issue that has not been addressed, then it might take longer as well until that's sorted out. And it's usually related to detoxification, digestion, or the nervous system. And then any of those systems aren't humming at all cylinders, then it's hard for the endocrine system to be functioning well. It sounds like it's very bio-individual because I know friends who have gone off the birth control and they get pregnant immediately. But then I also know people who like take a year or like, you know, it's been a long time. And I like what you're saying that, you know, because there's always like an underlying root cause to Mm -hmm. uh, many, you know, imbalances and dynamics. 
So it's important to consider every person as like an individual and find out what, you know, what their underlying cause is, I guess. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. Okay, cool. So the last two questions is about the IUD. Um, so what are the side effects of using the Mirena IUD and are there any nutritional deficiencies associated with using an IUD? So that's the Mirena IUD is a hormonal IUD. So it's kind of like the same side effects you could potentially have for um, birth control pills. Mm -hmm. But the difference is, is that the hormones are a little more local. Um, now you can't, nothing is like perfectly local in the body because it's not like, you know, you have the same circulation in your uterus, the same nervous system connection. You know, we can't like separate our hand from the rest of our body. Same thing. You can't separate your uterus from the rest of your body, but it's less, it's, it's more local hormonally. So the, the symptoms can often be less, um, especially in terms of that kind of long-term impact on your, you know, hormones, but I, I am still wary of having something like that for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, depending on your goals, I do like it though, for people as much as possible to have normal, healthy cycles, because bathing your brain and your heart in estrogen and progesterone for decades is really protective for, um, you know, health well into your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll care about that when you're um, I've actually been thinking of um, copper toxicity that might have come up for some people. Could you talk yeah. about that? With the copper IUD, you know, there's no literature supporting copper toxicity, but mm -hmm. absolutely anecdotally, you know, I've seen it. And, you know, again, supporting detoxification pathways, nutrients to metabolize copper, zinc to balance copper. Um, and then some people just, you know, can't tolerate that level of metal exposure. So mm -hmm. a different form of birth control could be better. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. So that's all the questions I have today. Do you have anything else you wanted to add about birth control and fertility? I would just say that birth control is a really valuable tool that we have, but we have to be really mindful of how we use it. So it's not something to just like turn your cycles off for two decades while you just aren't interested in getting pregnant mm -hmm. because you're missing some really valuable hormones that can support your long-term health, your long-term fertility. And, um, you know, it, it, we have these cycles for a reason and they can be really beneficial to our health. So the more we kind of embrace that, but then there might be periods of time when using an easier method of birth control than fertility awareness method, or there might be some reason to use barrier methods or not use barrier methods, many of which can be really effective if they're, if they're used well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm glad we have these tools, but I just think it's important. And they can also be helpful for symptom suppression. For example, you know, short-term for women with really severe pain from endometriosis mm -hmm. doesn't cure endometriosis. It's not a good solution, but it can be a temporary symptom management, which can, you know, really give women their lives right. um, until they've had more the opportunity to do more intensive treatment. 
Um, so I think that we have to always think about how we're using birth control mindfully. What's the purpose? What's the time frame? What's the exit strategy? Right. And, um, and then it's a valuable tool that we just, we want to use, not be sort of like put on, you know, this idea of, oh, my doctor put me on birth control. No, yeah, you made a decision, right? Yeah. You (laughs) made a decision to use birth control for a particular reason for a particular amount of time can be a really empowering tool. I love that. I think that's a really positive note to end on. And also, you know, I think whatever you talked about is very empowering for a woman to not only be uh, mindful, but also aware of any potential side effects if she, you know, if she eventually gets off it. Um, I also liked when you talked about, you know, having the whole healing team. And I always tell my clients, like, actually, you know, one of my goals is for you to not be my client anymore, because that means that, you know, you're like on your own journey. Um, And so, you know, if people want to find out more about your work and, you know, your team, where can they find you? For professionals who want to do more education with us, the website is integrative womenshealthinstitute.com. And um, for anyone who has really painful periods, whether they're related to endometriosis or not, or other symptoms of endometriosis or bladder issues, you know, sexual pain, they can grab a free copy of my book, Outsmart Endometriosis at outsmartendo.com. And that's valuable just for any period issues. There's recipes in there and all kinds of good stuff. So I would start there. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Integrative Women's Health. Fantastic. Awesome. I didn't know you had a book too. So that's really cool. (laughs) I have to go check it out now. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I think what you share was really valuable and we, you know, really straight to the point. So I think women who are listening to this, can find all the answers that they need. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me.